Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. A little bit slow on the draw tonight, are we? I guess so. A little bit slow. Considering we're early. Yes, I know. Slow. <laughs> this is so great. This is going to be a great show because we're both so awake. That's right. Now that it's sleeping on the job, <laughs> like normal. Uh, 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 what do you got going on with yourself this week? You know what we should talk about? Go ahead. You first. <laughs> um, let me think. Go ahead. Oh, I don't know. What should we talk about? We're going to talk about Spider-Man just briefly. Oh, 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 oh. Don't you think? Well, it's going to be hard to be brief. We got a little but bit I, But brief. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Um, you know, I mean, we say it's, it's out. It's new. We're not doing a film board on it. Shouldn't, don't, doesn't it deserve just a little bit of, of talky talk? Sure, sure. Let's, let's give it a little bit of talk. All right. So what'd you think? You know, I was, uh, I, I was kind of disappointed. Um, I, I really thought that... Electro was pretty bland as a villain. I didn't care for his character development. I didn't care for the arc that they tried to give him. I just felt like they tried to um, force some transformation on him, uh, you know, being a Spider-Man lover to all of a sudden being an enemy. I just didn't buy into any of that. I really, really liked Green Goblin, and I could have just done a whole film of Green Goblin. That was the part that really... Uh, was the most exciting part of the movie for me. Um, and as far as Rhino goes, um, I actually really like how they brought Rhino into it, but I am really bothered that they used it in advertising in any way, shape, or form. I think it would have made it really exciting if they had not ever shown it, and it was actually a big surprise at the ending. Totally agree on that. Point. Not that I'm giving away the ending, but hey, yeah. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree on that point. I I think that was a betrayal of the uh, of of a great uh, moment um, in in the film in in terms of great moments, and I say that like with quotes around it because I'm like you. I was ultimately disappointed in the film, and I think I, I but I I think the reason I was disappointed is because. Um, is probably because of context now that we, you know, we we had this long conversation about what Marvel was doing, uh, you know, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and in in that respect, whatever you think of the individual entities, I think what they're doing is taking a lot of risks with, uh, you know, sort of changing the way we look at some of these stories and. I really like where they're going with these stories. And to see, you know, Sony uh, come back with this version of Spider-Man that gives us really functionally no evolution over Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man of, you know, a decade and a half ago. I mean, I, it, it, it feels like uh, uh, it's it just a sad state of stagnation. 
uh, for the property. And it makes me sad. I think the visuals were stunning. I think a lot of the, the, the major set pieces were a lot of fun. I, you know, I really enjoyed some of the visuals. I thought it was quite a ride, uh, but they were tied together with, with, um, you know, same stuff, different day. I, I I kind of agree with that. I do think that they did some different stuff than the Tobey Maguire. Unfortunately, I felt like the stuff that they actually did do, I, I agree. I think that the actual Spider-Man stuff of him swinging and kind of almost that first-person POV or it felt like a GoPro attached to him at yeah. times as he was swinging through the city. I loved all of that. Yeah, I, that I, was I, fun. I really felt um, like they did something really exciting there. Um, but I felt that the character development between Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy is where I really was just like, I felt like there was just, they were going for just kind of this, this kind of hipster couple. And I, you know, I don't know. I think this, this is the one where I really kind of could feel the Mark Webbness of it after something like 500 days of summer. I just felt like. I, I just don't feel like they're nailing the Peter Parker aspect of of Peter Parker. And I, I don't feel like like I feel like, you know, the whole with great power comes great responsibility is such a key part of Spider-Man. I feel like they finally hit that kind of at the uh, toward the end of the film. Um, but I don't feel like they um, I don't know. I just don't feel like it was ever as present as it should have been. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, it, you know, the the last one we were, talked about, the first Amazing Spider-Man, um, you know, I think the thing that we were excited about was, A, what Andrew Garfield brought to Peter Parker. Not necessarily what he brought to Spider-Man, but but to the character of Peter Parker. That was that was sort of a new angle, and it was the stuff I, I think I remember we were most excited about. Um, and that the relationship that he had with Gwen Stacy was an interesting one there. And and I think it's ironic now that the most interesting character stuff for me in Amazing Spider-Man 2 was the the buddy stuff when, uh, you know, Peter Parker and, and um, uh, Harry Osborn are palling around throwing rocks. I mean, I loved the way their conversation changed, the way their their um, their sort of tone and demeanor changed, uh, and I thought that was just a really interesting, although brief, uh, bit of exploration of these two, you know, former buddies. I don't think it was set up quite well enough. Uh, like we're we're given to take an awful lot for granted. Um, just in in terms of their history, uh, but I I really like that that exchange, and I'm totally with you. I, you know, the relationship between the Goblin and Peter Parker is one that has been grossly underplayed in all the Spider-Man movies, in my opinion. And I think that um, I, I think th- that Dane DeHane is is probably you know really well equipped to to do that if they just sort of give him give him a shot. Well, and hopefully they will, because clearly yeah. with, you know, with this one, they're building it up for that Sinister right. Six with him uh, building the team, which is, you know, something that I believe does happen in yeah. the uh, in the other one. And, uh, you know, I uh, or in the comics, um, I, I'm excited to see where they go with it. I just um, gosh, I just I wish they had found a way to tell a better story. And I wish that they had just done just Green Goblin. And cut out Electro entirely. Yeah, it, it Electro was tough. Although, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of get it. You, you know, they want to expand the universe of villains. You know, I mean, I, I, I kind of get that feeling. And, I, you know, they, they need to explore enough villains in this movie if they really are going to set up the Sinister Six. 
um, because, you know, Electro's not going to get as much screen time in the Sinister Six because they'll have more villains to introduce. Um, so I, I sort of get it. Plus, he's visually exciting. You know, I mean, he's a good-looking villain, and I think they did some cool stuff w- with him. Well, uh, he certainly looks better without the stupid costume that he that had was, in the comics, yeah. with the, the stupid yellow like lightning bolts right. coming <laughs> off of his head. mask and stuff. I mean, yeah. oh, like the costume one. I always, I mean, the, I mean, the cartoon one, and the, both in the cartoon and the comics, I always thought just looked so silly. I did too. I agree with you. Yeah. All right. So you know, fair to middling, but uh, you know, I'm not in a big hurry to see it again. No, which is it is uh, a shame. I wish that it was better. But yeah. what are you gonna do? All right. All right. So that's is that it for old business? That's it. Wow, yes, we it got is. we got super serious really fast. Just now, <laughs> just on this show. It's super serious. That's right. Spider Man equals serious. <laughs> Let's tell the people where we're from. Let's everybody it's the next reel i'm pete wright that's andy nelson hey and we spoil movies if you didn't get that already we spoil all of the movies and uh so you should see the movies that we talk about before we talk about them uh, as many of you are are doing we hope and we're getting some great comments what was the uh what was what's the the, the latest round of comments uh the we introduced uh a a listener to a terrific film in our conversation be- last week yeah. yeah i believe it was uh ben lott and uh he left us a, a wonderful comment over on our on, on our website he sure did and uh you know ben was i think he was with me on the matrix but he's with you now on uh das boot i i think so as far as so we're one to one that's right the great length on- debate i think i i <laughs> I won out on that one. <laughs> I've been really reflecting on that, and I think, you know, I, I still think that uh, that you're wrong. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, see, when you start with something like, I've been really I reflecting know. on that. Uh, you, anyway. You, have there. <laughs> uh, you can find out more about the show at thenextreel.com. You can read the blog stylings of the goodly, kindly, once and future king, Steve Sarmento. And uh, uh, just catch up with uh, all of us over on our various social profiles, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, wherever you want to chat about movies. Um, uh, or, or like the goodly, kindly uh, Ben Lott, just comment on the blog, which is a great place to do so. Uh, we sure appreciate that. So sure. uh, uh, let's let's do a little catch-up. Uh, I'm going to say not the greatest week for our outsmarted Guess the Movie <laughs> Pony Prize uh steve smart versus the people competition you know he uh you know he there it's it's one of those tricks one when you start putting faces up that's it inevitably someone is going to kind of uh put two and two together and figure out whose face is whose and and uh sure enough cameron l ryan was able to pinpoint it on the third image for out of sight and uh, so she nailed it. She has entered to win our Pony Prize for that week. <laughs> Out of sight. What a great film. It is a great movie. I'd love to watch that one again. I haven't seen it in a while. I know. It's been too long. A lot of memorable. But, but it was uh, it was a great uh, pick because this was uh, uh, Clooney's birthday, right? That's right. That was, uh, I believe his birthday was uh, Tuesday, was it? Or Wednesday. I'm forgetting now. But don't get don't get used to that because you know I don't think it's just going to be a pony prize of actors whose birthday is that week. 
Yes, I think right. it's safe to say a lesson has been learned. <laughs> <laughs> so no birthdays and no architecture. That right. is also for Cameron L. Ryan. <laughs> That's right. We're on to you. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Let's do trailers. I want to go first. I, you know, I'm... Uh pretty excited about this one especially you can't even you can't even wait two and a half minutes i can't i can't especially since we had our uh our found footage series not too long ago and as as those of you who listen to those episodes know i certainly was struggling trying to find a, a good found footage trailer to talk about every week would well, that this had come out just weeks prior but, c'est la vie. Anyway, it is here today. Uh, it is the trailer for the film As Above, So Below, which I have to say, I really like that title. There's oh, something really, really kind of just unsettling uh, and, about and it. And it so goes with the poster of the uh, Eiffel Tower upside down. That, yeah, everything about it just just is very creepy looking. And, yeah. and I mean, the whole idea of it is... The fact that there are these catacombs under the city of Paris and, um, you know, people have explored some of them. But word is it is a much larger network and web of catacombs than than people realize. And this trailer is about a group of, I don't know, 20 somethings uh, who basically set out to kind of explore them. And, of course, it, it, it's almost like the descent in a city setting is yeah. really what it feels like. They have to crawl through these tight, tiny tunnels. Inevitably, there's a cave-in. They can't go backwards, so now their only option is to go forward. And, of course, there's all these creepy inscriptions on the wall, like, through here lies the gates to hell, and cheery things like that. <laughs> and <laughs> really, you don't really want to go through. It's just like the descent, the if the caves could see your soul. <laughs> yeah. Well, some might say that about the descent. Uh-huh. It's there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's grim. Yeah. So, so this one looks just downright creepy because definitely there is that uh, satanic, you know, hellish element of, you know, pulling the darkest parts of these people's psyches out and basically putting it on display for them as they tour through these uh, these catacombs under the city, and it's horrifying. It's really horrifying. So I, I'm quite excited to see it. And, you know, it's interesting. On the At the end of the trailer, they say, uh, go to YouTube and type Paris catacombs. And there's all these, like, videos, like, man gets lost in the catacombs of Paris, part one of two. Oh. There's, like, a, an actual TV show about this uh, this guy who filmed himself as he was wandering the catacombs. Now, I have no idea if that's just part of their marketing plan, but according to the uh, the YouTube site, it was uploaded in 2010. I don't know if they had the foresight to upload it that far back, but there certainly are a number of creepy videos. Ghost Adventures, Paris Catacombs, Season 9. So apparently there's a whole season <laughs> exploring the catacombs under Paris. So. Okay, see, that goes along with uh, shooting films in you know, shot order over decades in order to get mm. real aging of actors. Right. If you're now, if you're going to make a movie, you need to really start uploading your guerrilla promotional material a decade before you actually start shooting. That's exactly. That's right. going to be the new thing. Somebody is already doing it, and we just won't know <laughs> it until 2020. That's right. Unless it was this film. That would be in a, which a case year. we just gave it away. 
That's right. They produced a nine-season television show just as marketing for this movie. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, creepy, creepy. Uh-huh. Uh, I can't wait to see it. I think it actually looks great, and I was a big fan of The Descent, and I don't usually like those movies, although and more me- and more of them are coming out that counter that. That's right. And for people who did like Quarantine, this is directed by John Eric Dowdle and uh, who co-wrote it with his brother Drew. So they're back in the saddle doing some more uh, found footage stuff after their failure of working with uh, M. Night Shyamalan, Devil. That was not a good movie. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) All right, my turn. Uh, Wait, wait, wait. Go ahead. This one opens August 15th. Oh, good. Uh Get that out there. Okay, I'm going to tell you about my bittersweet relationship with this next with my film. Is it bittersweet? It is, but but for uh, yes, it is. Uh, I think this is a great movie. It's called Filth. It is written and directed by John S. Baird, uh, and stars James McAvoy, Jamie Bell, Eddie Marzan. It looks fantastic. A bipolar, bigoted, junkie cop manipulates and hallucinates his way through the festive season uh, in a bid to secure promotion and win back his wife and daughter. It's a real homespun treat. James McAvoy is great. I have seen exactly half of it. Wow. It is on iTunes. It's not in theaters yet. It opens in theaters uh, on the 20... 20- well, no, it says it already opened, but that's not actually true. It opens in theaters on May 30th, but it's in iTunes right now. And I was at a friend's house who had rented it, and we watched exactly half of it, and I had to leave after that because of children. Mm. Right? And so I've seen half of it. I don't know how it ends, but I had a blast during the first half. It is crazy and totally worth seeing. That's all. That's what I'm going to say. So it's going to be in theaters on uh, May 30th, and you should totally see it. I have to say, seeing Eddie Marsan in the bar at the end of the trailer. Yes. (laughs) A side of him I've never seen. Eddie Marsan is terrific. (laughs) Terrific. So uh, filthed. James McAvoy. And James McAvoy is, uh, I think he's just terrific in in uh, it just, almost everything he does. I even liked him in the thing where he could throw bullets sideways. Oh, you did? Yeah, no, I know. I, I had a ball. That's on my guilty pleasure list. I'm not kidding. It, yeah, that definitely was Wanted? one you should feel guilty about. You're a guilty pleasure. <laughs> it, it had its fun <laughs> moments. Wow. That's what I tell my wife all the time. <laughs> Oh, hey. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh. Uh, okay, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, terrific. So go see it. That's that's the end of my story. <laughs> and scene. And scene. Call me Snake. In New York, 1997, the entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. are patrolled and the United States police force has everything under control they think I'm going in John Carpenter's escape from New York the high adventure of the future one man must go in where no man has ever gotten out and if he comes back alone His nightmare has just begun. Who are you? John Carpenter's escape from New York. Heard you were dead.
John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the greatest escape of them all, is about to blow the future apart. Okay, so Andy, I got to tell you something about this film. Okay. It's a really, really terrible film. <laughs> and and yet, I, I, I get great joy out of watching it. It's a terrible film. No, it's it. Th- there's a lot of problems with it. This is not one of my favorite John Carpenter films, but it really? is a lot really? of fun. It is a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's dumb fun, is what this movie is. It is, uh, yes, yes. So we're still in our 1981. Uh, still, we're in our 1981 series, uh, and uh, it feels like we're climbing a mountain. Uh, on Escape from New York, uh, written and directed by John Carpenter, actually co-written by John Carpenter and Nick Castle, uh, who is, I think, more more or less widely known as the man behind the mask. Mm-hmm. In now you're Hello. now you're supposed to take it. Halloween. Yes. See how we finish each other's sentences, just like an old married couple. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. <laughs> Yes, and uh, he doesn't look anything like the, you know, like he would fit behind that hockey mask. No, he <laughs> like I expect his face to be like round with little holes in it. And and what's funny is Nick uh, Castle went on to become a director as well, directing the Last Starfighter, which I absolutely love. Yeah, but sadly, also directing Dennis the Menace, Major Payne, Mister Wrong. <laughs> Some real, uh, some films that you just don't want to associate with. I know. Last Starfighter and then downhill from there. Although, what did we think of The Boy Who Could Fly? Was that one I should remember? I remember it. Uh, I watched it when it came out, and I don't think it's a movie I would ever want to go watch again because I have a feeling it's really not good. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing about, um, about Escape from New York. So, uh, the, the whole conceit, the, the movie Escape from New York takes place in, uh, uh, post-World War III, uh, America, and that happens in, uh, 1997. Mm-hmm. So, I just, in terms of a walk down memory lane, I thought, I'm gonna, I wonder what happened in 1987. <laughs> I, I sort of forgot, and I wanted to see just how how well did they get it? Did they get it right? Uh, and so I I thought I'd just look up a couple of things that happened in nineteen ninety. Okay, right. Well, Bill Clinton was elected uh, and inaugurated for his second term. Okay, he was inaugurated for his second term. So he would have been the one who had to that's, get broken it, out of that's New York. My, that's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. The economy was doing quite well. Over the course of the year, it, it, uh, it closed over um, 8,000 8, for the first time. It you know, crashed and then gained again, and so lots of records in the, on the Dow. Um, uh, it, you know, San Diego, Heaven's Gate. Uh, we had the Heaven's Gate cultist commit mass suicide. That mm. was a dark, uh, dark march. Kind of New York, uh, escape from New Yorkish. That's kind of what it felt like. Although you know, it was a big year for uh, the uh, Hale Bop comet. I don't know if you mm. remember Hale Bop uh, hysteria. Uh, yes. That was I it do. was everywhere. Uh, and uh, let's see. Oh, the Labour Party in the United Kingdom, right? Returns mm-hmm. Tony Blair or t- puts Tony Blair in the seat of Prime Minister, and then uh, just months later, 
the House of Commons votes for a total ban on handguns, which, interestingly, uh, is a precursor to the totally absurd 24 Live Another Day that just launched last night on Fox. That show is full of crazy handguns in London. Crazy amounts of handguns. Everybody's got a handgun. Illegal. Gangsters, all of them. Uh, The biggest news... The Star Alliance is formed. Can you can you tell me what that is? Yes, Star Trek. No, that's no. not. That's not it. <laughs> that's, no, you're totally wrong. It's <laughs> <laughs> gonna sound so cool, and now he sounds so not cool. No, yeah, you're not cool. Although Star Alliance is actually not as cool as as it sounds. Uh, it is the it's the thing when you fly on United. It says part of Star Alliance. Wow. Right? But do you know the airlines that make up Star Alliance? Well, United. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. Air Canada, low-hanging fruit, right? Lufthansa, and then these two had me, Scandinavian Airlines System and Thai Airways International. So there's that. That was a big year. I uh, guess. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. The first Harry Potter was published in um, Britain, in London. Uh, Hong Kong. Went back to uh, China. Uh, Fen-Fen, turns out, causes heart attacks. Uh, Princess Diana. Mm. Right? Wow. That was... It was all over Iraq, the disarmament crisis, you know? It was all about the uh, uh, unscum uh, inspectors, uh, all trying to do the weapons stuff and uh, looking for the chemical weapons in Iraq. The first color photograph appears on the front page of the New York Times. Wow. Huh? And boy, they were behind the times. Color right? printing was invented so much longer ago. <laughs> in Des Moines, Iowa, Bobby McAuffey gives birth to septuplets in the second known case where all seven babies are born alive and the first in which to survive infancy. Septuplets. Uh, and of course, James Cameron's Titanic, the highest grossing film of all time until his other film, Avatar. But at the time, 1997, Titanic hit in uh, December of that do you year. Think, do you think uh, they screened it in the New York prison? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> do I they have a way to get, get prints in and out? <laughs> so as far as I can tell, nothing about uh, James Cameron's uh, 1997 <laughs> actually plays out. You mean John Carpenter's? I mean John Carpenter's, <laughs> yes, right, sorry. Uh, John Carpenter's 1997 uh, actually is uh, remotely related to the real 1997. But here's, I, I was thinking about that because I'm like, okay, this was 1981, though. You have to give him some credit. And he wrote this in like 74. So no, he wrote right. it a long time ago. So putting it 16 years, even from when it was released in 1981, putting it 16 years into the future, I mean, that's like someone telling a story that takes place in 2030 that would come out this year. I mean, it's entirely likely that we could say between now and then World War Three had happened and all, you know, New York was a prison system and all this. I, I mean, I can see that 16 years into the future, people could do that. And, you know, it's certainly, I mean, it's easy to go, what was it? the fifth element was like 300 years into the future or something that's clearly outside of our uh, our lifetime. So we're never going to quite know how accurate he got it. Um, but you know, so I kind of dismiss that. Well, and that was, I I know, and I'm sort of, uh, you know, of course it's, this is tongue in cheek. I, the, the most interesting thing about it, I mean, I, I think, 
Uh, as a filmmaker, it's a much safer play to go further into the future. And in fact, as a futurist film, uh, I think Escape from New York works better with a date further into the future, 100 years into the future rather than 16. Uh, and, and I think maybe uh, you know filmmakers are getting increasingly conservative when they talk about futurist uh, films. Mostly, I think, because the technology allows to do more future-y things than they could in 1981. Um, but the other piece of this, which I, I think is worth talking about, is the basis, uh, uh, you know, the, the cultural basis on which he, uh, you know, he worked to create Escape from New York. I mean, this film was his response to Watergate. Yeah. Um, and I agree, I think, with those who had trouble seeing this as anything more than just an emotional response to Watergate um, on behalf of John Carpenter. Like, it, it doesn't—that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. <laughs> that That's uh, what it—yeah. No, I, I, I think that it's great that he pulled that out of that. But I, don't, yeah. I don't see that. But it's, no, I, I yeah. was interested in your take on it because I, I, didn't, I didn't grab it. No, I didn't either. And I, but but that's, you know, I think the nature of storytelling and this is something that I always talk about in my screenwriting class is, you know, you can pull your idea from anything, from news headlines, from dreams you had, from stories somebody told you, wherever it comes from. But it doesn't have to be that story. It doesn't have to be um exactly as as it was presented to you that is just the germ of an idea and now you can take that and you can kind of grow it like a tree and it could go into something totally different and i think this is a perfect example uh you know here's a guy who saw uh watergate and clearly had his own opinions uh politically about what it meant for the country um where it was going to be sending us all of that and from that, it, it tapped him into a place where he was able to kind of conceive this future world and write this script and, and tell this really kind of just uh, silly, fun story about Snake Plissken trying to rescue the president out of this giant prison that New York has, has since become. Um, and, and so I find that completely um, – not apparent when I hear that that's where he got the story idea from. But to me, that doesn't matter at all, because what matters is that it's a perfect example of how how something that's happening in the real world can be the germ of an idea that turns into something that really has become uh, quite the cultural kind of, I don't know if I'd call it a phenomenon, but it certainly is kind of a, a cult classic in its own right. It certainly has developed its own following. And there are people who follow the adventures of Snake Plissken, not just in this movie and in the sequel, but in comic books and uh, just all these other stories that, uh, um, that it has since kind of garnered. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I'm totally with you on all of that. I I think what's what's interesting to me there's a there's a practical um, point to that, which is I, I the way I understand it, the film was turned down initially because people didn't see the connection to his pitch that it was based on his reaction to Watergate, and yet when the film finally gets made, um, 
you know, it is a film that celebrates so many of the the cultural issues at play when we talked in 1970, or we talked about the films in 1976, that yeah. there is a cynicism, a suspicion of power and, you know, government and law enforcement, uh, and and that there is a, a general uh, drift toward the, the ruggedness of the street. And in this case, they went, uh, far beyond just the natural sort of culture of the street, and they manufactured this sort of amped-up experience of the street by making the street an actual prison, not just a figurative, oh my gosh, I can't escape the street. It is an actual prison, the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the street of the island of Manhattan, which has been walled off. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that ends up being, uh, you know, an, uh, an interesting thing. And, I, you know, it it's what it's what sort of screams to me uh, that I kind of hope somebody picks this up and remakes this movie. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, this is, this, this uh, is one, right? This is one. This is, but see the challenge with a film like this is, is I think that it developed from that cynicism and it developed from the kind of the zeitgeist of the time. And what I'm afraid of is that somebody who came along to remake it, it's just like the remake of Straw Dogs, yeah. uh, which, which I mean, it may be unfair of me to even talk about since I never saw the remake. Um, but you know, I'm a big fan of Peckinpah's original as, and it has this darkness and this tone to it that really creates this this you know this dark vibe all the way through the film. The remake, it's like the the filmmakers, from my understanding, is they pretty much kept the story, um, but they just don't get into the 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 feeling that it created. They don't have a sense of what it was that that led to the creation of that film. They were just remaking a movie to tell it, basically, and. I'm afraid of this getting remade where they're going to have to find ways to to make it feel a little more modern and edgy and and they're not going to tap into any of that uh, the dark cynicism that came with uh, with the original. Now, I could be wrong, but based on remakes that have been coming out recently, I don't feel like there's a good track record for them and I would be I'd be hard-pressed to to wish that this would get remade only to have it be just another RoboCop or another uh, Total Recall or Straw Dogs. Yeah, Total Recall is case in point. But um, but if it gets in the hands of the right person, maybe it could. I know um, they had been talking about doing a remake for a while. I think, um, was it Ger- Gerard Butler was actually slated to play Snake Plissken and... and um, uh, Kurt Russell actually came out and said, you know, it's a, he's a great actor. I think that's fantastic. But I have to say that something about the film that I've always felt, you know, very that holds very true with this particular story is that Snake Plissken is an American and needs to be played by an American. And uh, I can definitely see that. And, you know, that one fell through. And my understanding is there's not, uh, I, I think last Joel Silver had purchased it um, Jason Statham and Tom Hardy, two other Brits, were in talk to play Snake. Um, I don't think anything is uh, happening with it, as far as I know. Though, do you do you agree with his uh, assessment? Because uh, you know what that says to me is that this is a, a a naturally American story. Do you agree with that? I, you know, I do to a certain extent, but then again, um, wasn't uh, where was Donald Pleasance from? Wasn't he was Donald Ple- Pleasance British? I'm feeling like he I is. 
I could be wrong, but you know, he he played president of the United States for Pete's sake. I mean, um, it's uh, yeah, let's see, yeah, he was born in the UK, yeah. so um, it's one of those things where uh, John Carpenter certainly didn't uh, feel stuck with having to have. Uh, an all-American cast in Escape from New York, the first go-around. I think that, in general, our society is so um, much a mishmash anyway. I don't think it matters too much. Honestly, I think um, British people, Australians, I think people from all over the world have become so good at kind of portraying Americans, and and likewise, Americans portraying people from other um, countries that I, you know... I don't know if it matters that much to me as long as they get the character right. To me, Snake Plissken is one of those characters that just he's got this vibe, this kind of this this apathy, this anger, this coolness, uh this attitude that I really like in Kurt Russell. I think he just creates such a great character here and it is one of those characters I feel like okay, I don't guess I don't care if it's an American actor playing it as long as they nail it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Kurt Russell's Snake Plissken. What is it about um, about Snake that you think is uh, affable in this sort of, uh, you know, when thrown into this crazy prison universe? I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things where he's kind of this character who just doesn't seem to care. He's got an interesting backstory that's kind of summed up in... Um, one sentence that Lee, Glan- Lee Van Cleef has with him early on when he's first brought in uh, about how he flew a, what was it, he, you flew a, a goal fire over uh, in the battle for Len- Leningrad or something like that. You know, he throws this little line out there um, hinting at his World War III um, veteran background, which provides really interesting story that... Um, uh, I think would be, um, I don't know, just it strikes me as a very interesting place that this guy's coming from. And now here he is just robbing banks and he's kind of, um, you know, in a in a way, one of those, I can see the story. Like, I, I that's what I love about backstories like this where it's thrown out as one line and then I get to kind of create the rest of it in my head where I see, okay, so he comes back with some form of PTSD. He's He was let down by the government and now he's kind of, uh, you know, acting out against it and he's just robbing banks and, you know, the government failed him. So he's just going to uh, take advantage of the system and, and he gets caught and brought into this prison. And even at the end, it's like he gives the president one chance to prove to him that he's more than um, just a representative of the government. And he, and he's not going to be just the same old president who's going to fall into the trap, but the president doesn't, the president falls into that trap. And that's why that ending of the film, I think is so great because the way that snake Plissken plays it. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's one of those sort of iconic twists, right? And it, it's one of those iconic twists that, that keeps playing out, uh, in media and, and, you know, whether it's a, a gladiator story or, you know, the brown coats in serenity, um, you know, we have this um, this universe of the of you know the betrayed hero, um, and uh, you know I I really like it. I think they you know this is one of those areas, and I I at the risk of sounding repetitive, where I think that um, uh, this is going to sound weird, right? I'm not sure that he's tough enough. 
Uh, hmm. Right. I, and of course, in 1981, uh, he was the the tough guy and he was the iconic tough guy. And this is another thing where, where my fantasy world is, you know, we create an even more grit. I mean, this the, the film sort of looks like, uh, you know, kind of a, a stage production. Right. Um, but, you know, I really like the idea of this character who is, you know, betrayed. Uh, caught and has enough, uh, you know, have, has enough stacked against him that he has to, he has to take on this impossible job. Um, you know, they in, they inject him with um, these capsules, tracking bomb capsules into his neck, uh, and so there's our ticking clock, and they give him a fantastic digital watch. <laughs> that is fantastic. In order to count down the uh, time that he has left, uh, and it is incredibly accurate. Uh, and <laughs> then they then they send him into prison. And when they get into prison, uh, it turns out they're actually on a set of a of a David Bowie video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, New York is definitely uh, uh, an interesting looking place. the The first guy who comes out before Pliskin gets there. Uh, I don't even know what his name is, but he's the guy who is kind of the assistant for um, uh, Isaac Hayes, yeah, for, for the, the, the Duke. Duke, right? But his assistant is just <laughs> just really, really creepy, but has kind of like that the Bride of Frankenstein hairdo, yeah, with like his sharpened teeth and, and the just, laugh, yeah, just oh. Yeah, I, I mean, I there are elements of this that feel very dated, and I feel like they could now, when the, if they do get around to actually doing a remake, they could find ways to make possibly a more convincing future. Again, this is me looking at it from here rather than from 1981. That's, that's the truth. Although I think it really celebrates all the things that were terrible about us being essentially children of the 80s. Yes, you know, I mean, I you know, those were our our sort of formative media years, and I I think uh, that's a real problem. <laughs> yeah, it is. Is this is this is the era that gave us you know, Batman, the Batman three. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. There's something. I I feel like now they're better at picking something in the future and giving somebody a look that feels more futuristic. Whereas in the past, when they give someone a futuristic look, it might, they might give them different clothes and stuff, but their hairstyle still feels very period. Like yeah. even looking at star Wars, I mean, all of their hairstyles, uh, everything looks so futuristic except for like Luke's shaggy seventies do. Right. You know? <laughs> and Han Solo's shaggy do. I, I feel like they, those were things that they had, hard time letting go with or maybe the actors just like i'm not cutting my hair for your movie yeah who knows but you know and then you have films like uh like 2001 you know I, that that you know play uh a, a futurist sort of science fiction role in a way that doesn't look dated right um you know obviously the technology the computers themselves have have changed but but you know the hal the interface to hal is is something that that actually you know we are seeing modeled technology of today off of um you know so so it's i, I think it, it's possible and i and and in this case 
it's it's almost celebrating too much of or bringing in too much of the present uh and just painting it neon yeah uh that makes it just sort of ugly and garish and not really believe i mean this thing was dated by 1991 not just 19 you know i mean not just today it was it was dated almost immediately well and i think that goes to speak about the low budget um, quality that went into the actual production of this. I mean, John Carpenter, I mean, he had a decent amount of money, but it wasn't anything to write home about. And that's definitely something that um, shines through in a movie like this, uh, where you're trying to create this future. And I, I mean, I did see that in some of the reviews that people said, it's just like, okay, you're, you know, you're creating this future world and you're, you're, kind of halfway there you're creating an interesting idea but you're not actually giving us the look that really should go with it and coming out of that indie world like he had um come from that's that that i think is a hard lesson to kind of uh be taught and find a way to create a very believable um new york prison city i mean every time i see it it's like why i mean there's so few people there. I mean, it, it, there's just so many things that it just looks, it looks barren. It looks empty. It looks, you know, not like there's, it, you know, not that scary. I mean, it's scary. You've got like the rat people crawling out of the dark and stuff like that. But I don't know. On the whole, it's not as scary as it, like a prison city could be. I wonder what, for example, the adjusted, um, uh, the adjusted budget would have looked like comparing this to say Clockwork Orange, right? It, it which was made, I, I think, what nineteen seventy? Oh, sixty nine. Seventy. Yeah, seventy right seventy one. Somewhere in there, right? And it was made for less. Uh, it looks like what two point two million. Two point two million. Nineteen seventy one. Nineteen seventy one. Oh, there you go. A decade earlier. A decade earlier for two point two million dollars and seventy one dollars. How uh, long? How long was that? Well, uh, let's see. What was, so two point two million? Uh huh. So that would have been twelve million six hundred fifty thousand in today's dollars. And what, I know we're jumping to numbers early, but I I find it interesting because the Clockwork Orange I think does set an interesting sort of crime scene in a city and captures this a weird right dystopian future britain mm-hmm. uh and does so in a way that i find is it it fits the story even if it may come off as a little bit dated it fits the story in a way that's right. still uncomfortable to watch 40 years later and and doesn't come off as as you know well i yeah. see, escape, I mean, does it, escape from it new point? york escape from new york uh, had a budget of six million dollars in nineteen eighty one dollars, which today's dollars is fifteen point three, almost fifteen point four million dollars, and uh, uh, Clockwork Orange had two point two million in nineteen seventy one dollars, which is twelve point six. So with less money, um, they were and a longer movie, they were able to make a more believable future. Is essentially what you're saying. Uh, I'm. That's what I'm going to say. I don't know if I'm right. How does that hit you? I think it feels pretty good. I mean, I, you know, it's one of those things where, like, like you said at the beginning. I mean, Escape from New York. You're kind of comparing a film that really kind of had a date marked in the film that has since come and gone, um, which might make it a little more, 
uh, it might be easier to judge because it came out, uh, there was a 1997 that happened, there had not been a World War III, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Clockwork Orange is creating a uh, a much more uh, dystopian society that um, is not a future that I, I think that we're on track with, at least as far as like if, if you read the book and you know yeah. the, the way they talk with the droogs and everything. I mean, it's a very uh, difficult kind of book uh, and movie to get through because you have to kind of adapt to this language. Right. Um, but I don't know. I, it is actually a very interesting point that I think can be a fair assessment coming from John Carpenter, who, you know, he was, he was kind of born in the, in the low budget world, the indie world. And when he was given in today's dollars, $15 million, um, clearly didn't meet the levels that, uh, a master like Stanley Kubrick was able to do with his, uh, $12 million in today's dollars, um, 10 years earlier. Now, Stanley Kubrick had done some much larger, much more intense films. And so, you know, it's, it's a fair assessment. Um, I, 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 I kind of agree with you. I, you know, I just bring it up because, you know, immediately after this, he did the thing, right? I mean, the next year, the thing right. comes out. And I think the thing does achieve what I'm talking about here, right? I mean, he had more money to make it, I, I believe. Um, yeah, let me see. How much did he have for the thing? Well, you keep talking. Well, you know, that's, that's sort of my point. Like, this was immediately in the proximity of... Um, of Escape from New York, and I wonder just what happened that in in John Carpenter that caused him to to have this sort of leap. Was it is uh, you know the fact that he's working with um, you know a, a different production design team? Um, is is it uh, you know is it just a, a better script? Uh, is it uh, you know what what is it that that causes the sort of magic stuff to to kind of fall apart. Uh, and, and I can't shake this feeling when I watch Escape from New York that every time I look at it, I'm like, God, this would be such a great story if it were just better. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, no. You know? Um, it's, I mean, the thing cost $15 million in $82, which is about $36 million. So uh, he had more than twice the budget yeah, that, that he had for Escape from New York. Um but I, I, I mean, I think part of the problem is escape from New York. I mean, he's talking about a huge city, New York. Um, once he gets to New York, aside from like landing on the top of the the World Trade Center, and you know, I mean, there's some, there's actually some kind of frightening imagery in this, like the plane flying into the city and crashing in the buildings. Uh, you know, the that whole thing with the president, and then uh, the World Trade Center, which was just eerie to see again. But once he gets into New York, I mean, they're not even filming any of this in New York City no, because they were because in, they couldn't. It's like Illinois, yeah, and, and Illinois and uh, and St. Louis and I think East St. Louis, and uh, it just it all just felt small scale. And in a film called Escape from New York, <laughs> you feel like it needs to have a much bigger scope. And I think that's the difference with this and the thing. The thing is a much smaller scale. I mean, sure, it takes place in Antarctica and they're kind of trekking across the ice and all this stuff. 
But they were able to find an environment that fit with that story that works and makes the context feel that much stronger. In this film, especially when you walk into a film and you've got like the, the Statue of Liberty's head on the ground in the yeah. street. I mean, that was something I, you know, I think I always tell myself that it, it's in the film because of that poster. And then every time I watch the movie, I'm just like always kind of like a little disappointed. That, yeah, that's that like the reverse head, the reverse quarantine. Yeah, right. Where the it, the poster is setting you up for expectations for that a, never happen. a different film. Right. Yeah. Although, uh, interestingly enough, it did inspire the uh, Cloverfield filmmakers to actually yeah. have that whole thing with the uh, Statue of Liberty's head getting knocked around, which well, I... Somebody does it. I know. I know. Exactly. But, you know, it's it, that's one of those things. I mean, the um, I think the poster sets you up for something because the poster looks so badass. Yeah. And then you watch the film and it does feel just very small scale. And, well, and, and, it's a, and it's supposed to be a big scale story. It it is, and you know, and I would I would say, and I feel like you know, again, because of just the nature of of how we talk about these things, um, it's really easy to to feel like we're nitpicking, you know, part of the sort of something that was by design. You know, it it looks the way it is. It's celebrated the way it is. It's kind of a cult favorite because of how it looks and how it feels, and that's that's very much the John Carpenterness of it. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it would be a different film if it didn't look like a John Carpenter film. Um, and, and yet, you know, I mean, uh, it wasn't long after that, that he does Christine that, you know, he, he, like he, he grew a lot in his interpretation of these thrillers and horrors, um, after this film. And, and, um, uh, but I don't know that I would go so far as to say because of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know about this one. I mean, I, you know, I, the one say I, I would say that he did grow in in creating really fun characters, yeah. characters that were um, vibrant and really fun to see. Um, I, I I really enjoy Snake Plissken. I enjoy kind of the nature of the characters, kind of the look at society as uh, you know. A, a, one that has its its pitfalls and he examines it like he does later in they live and uh it's it's it seems to be something that he kind of really enjoys to look at in his films um so i like that uh, you know i feel like as a director he um yeah i mean it, it, i i think it was a good lesson maybe but i it's it's not uh one of my favorites like i said but it 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 has its it has its merits uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the people uh, in the film, shall we? Yes. Uh, we got, you know, we obviously we have Kurt Russell. We've talked a little bit about him. I In the 1980 Circus Magazine article, uh, you know, announcing the film, uh, Kurt Russell rides a new wave in Escape. Uh, this is uh, what Russell says about the, the part, his parts, uh, his and Isaac Hayes in particular. We were just like pirates out on the sea having a good time. Uh, the characters that Isaac and I play, says former child star Kurt 30, show a sort of disciplined irreverence the wild ones had mixed with some punk attitudes of today. Maybe the problem. Snake is a mercenary, and his style of fighting is a combination of Bruce Lee, the Exterminator, Darth Vader, and Eastwood's vocalness. But there's also a lot of new wave to him. Again, harken back to the problem. 
<laughs> his individuality, uh, though Pliskin is a convicted robber, Kurt explains, his individuality makes him acceptable to the audience in a heroic way. Darth Vader? Really? Uh, really? We're going to go? We're going to do Darth Vader? I don't see it. He was it. big at the time. I don't see it. Uh, so Kurt Russell, he he was coming off of, um, he, he was, as he mentions here, he's been, he had been in some rather upbeat TV roles. He played Elvis in uh, uh in uh, TV, in, in Elvis, in yeah. Elvis, the TV movie, uh, it was very, very popular, and that was just in 1979. And so this film was, this was the pivot point for Kurt Russell to show that he could play something different. Well, and he because he did used cars the year right before this, which was a comedy, and Kurt Russell coming off, of, and we talked about this on the thing, but I mean coming off of somebody who was in kind of all the Disney stuff, all the the kind of the TV stuff that he'd been in uh, as a kid. Um, even used cars. It all kind of had a much more comedy, family-friendly sort of vibe. It was and, an aw shucks. I mean, he was an aw shucks actor. Yeah, and this, I, I mean, the first choice, I think, for the studio to play was Tommy Lee Jones um, because they didn't think that Kurt Russell was right because of the stuff that he had done before this. Tommy Lee Jones. Snake Plissken. I I, <laughs> I don't I don't see it. I have a hard uh, time with that uh, one. <laughs> hard time with that. But it wasn't uh, 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 Bronson, right? Charles Bronson was in the on, in the running, and he uh, was in the running. And I think uh, John Carpenter felt he was too old for the role, and, and that Probably he would, he would so. lose uh, control of the film with a more experienced actor. Right. Uh, right. Uh, you know, I ultimately I I think Kurt Russell is probably you know. I mean, I, I think he's a he's he's a fine pick. Uh, oh, I, I think he's great. He yeah. this is his favorite is, character that he's done. This is his favorite iconic. Film that he's done. Yeah, yeah, he's he's an icon. Yeah, uh, it definitely is. I I it's uh, you know new tattoo artist though the snake coming out of his pants. <laughs> it looks like it was done with a sharpie. It really does. <laughs> it just yeah, it kind of cracked me you, up. You got to look at it to see it's a snake. That's it is pretty funny. <laughs> Supposedly, there's a story to that snake, and I don't, I don't know what it is, but I it does pique my curiosity. Now I want to know exactly what the story is behind it because it is a little uh, a little indie looking. Wow! Now yeah. I I want to know too. I know. Uh, and his wife at the time was actually uh, in the film. Season Hubley was his wife at the time, and she had just given birth to their son. And uh, so she uh, somehow, I guess they probably, I don't know if she was on set. She was an actress, but she was, uh, she was the one in Chock Full of Nuts, the restaurant, when all of the underground rat people start coming out of the woodworks, literally, like, <laughs> popping out of the floor and pulling her to her <laughs> very sudden demise. She, uh, this is another bit from the Circus article, uh, Circus Magazine article, uh, Kurt Russell's talking. Uh, Season was portraying what will be known as a crime groupie, uh, Russell says, with a sinister chuckle. There are, it seems, no rock bands in the penal colony, so the crime groupie is really is a really hip thing to be in 1997. To Hubley, or Hubley, Pliskin, the bank robber, is just like Mick Jagger. Our original concept was to have her wear a T-shirt Covered with the names of criminals, the only one not crossed off was going to be Snake Pliskin. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Right? Season Hubley. Mm. Interesting. Uh, okay. So there's uh, Kurt Russell. That's Kurt Russell. Yeah. 
Lee Van, I, Lee Van Cleef? Lee Van Cleef, man. Uh, I mean, he just looks great and rough, and it's hard to not love a little Lee Van Cleef oh. in a film like this. Lee Van Cleef, yeah. Yeah, he's done some... He's a, he's a good bad guy. He is. He's got a great look. He really does. We uh, have we haven't have we talked about any other uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef films yet? Uh, not yet. We're, I believe we're, I think we're going to. We are certainly going to be talking about them soon. Oh, that's good. Yeah, uh, you know he was he's he's sort of the, the he represents the man here, right? And he is the you know he is the the space between the wounded hero and the bureaucracy that uh, you know that has that wounded him you know he is the representation or, or the manifestation of that wounding and you know he puts himself in a place of of um you know he he is the one that that guides the story forward in in you know a uh, malevolent way um you think he was the 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 part was constructed uh well yeah i mean it's it's in the context of this type of story, I mean, this is one of those films, and I, I, I'd have to look back before this one came out, but this feels like it has all of those cliche elements in the in the film, like you know, like you said, the the person who's in charge, who's kind of the middleman. He's not quite as bad as the man. He's not quite at the level of the uh, of our hero, and and he definitely fits that mold. And that does feel very cliche in some of these types of films. I don't know if it was cliche in 1981 or if this is one of those films that kind of set that uh, defined uh, the cliche. D- yeah, helped define that cliche. But um, but I I do find myself just really enjoying him in the role, and even even at the end, I I feel like he might know kind of that, uh, you know, Pliskin is up to something more and may not care. I don't know. Maybe that's just me reading into it, but maybe yeah. that's just what I want. Well, and that's, a, I, you know, I'm not sure where you're going with that because there, there is this sense, like if, if I were to see the complete arc of Lee Van Cleef's character here of Hogue, um, he would be, he would be the, the bad guy at the beginning, but by the end he would be transformed. Yeah. Like in my perfect in my perfect world, he would see the interaction between Snake and the president. And, you know, that whole, at the end of that, he says, uh, screw it. And he walks off with Snake. <laughs> right. Or, or you know, at least makes note of the experience and doesn't take action to stop it or does something to illustrate that he's learned something on his journey, too. Right. Um, that's the that's the Hollywood ending, uh, which we don't necessarily get. What, what about um, uh, Ernie? Yeah, our dear friend Marty. <laughs> you know, it's fun to see him as the cabbie in this. Um, it's not a big role, but I think he does it justice. I think he's fun in the role. And I, I you know, I, it's great seeing him. It's it's nice that he was cast in a role like this. Uh, Ernest Borgnine is always fun to see on screen. And, you know, I, I thought he was great. That's something I think that uh, John Carpenter could do really well is find the right people to inhabit these roles. Even if the film itself doesn't necessarily work as well as it should, I feel like he built a cast that was pretty solid all the way through. I think I liked him better in this than in Marty. (laughs) How's that? 
Oh, there you go. Well, let me tell you this. This is this is Marty later in his life. Yeah. Like if he doesn't end up with a girl, he goes into a life of crime and he ends up a cabbie in, in New York prison. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh you know, um it, the thing I didn't know about Ernest Borgnine, even though we talked about uh, an Ernest Borgnine movie, I I don't think I made the connection that the guy was in SpongeBob SquarePants for 13 years. Wow, I didn't know that. He was Mermaid Man. Holy huh? God. Nothing? There you go. He was only in it for, in over those 13 years, he was in it for 15 total episodes. But still, I don't know about you, but there was, some, there was a period, and luckily it was short-lived, where uh, my son was pretty hip on SpongeBob. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's easy to it's easy to get sucked into that show. <laughs> Knowing from what experience, <laughs> from my children. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. They would have it on. I'd end up, you know, as I'm washing dishes in the sink, I find myself just staring at it. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy antics of SpongeBob and Patrick. <laughs> oh, Patrick. Uh, Donald Pleasance is, uh, you know, he's the president. Sort of forgettable. Yeah, well, he is, but I got to say, uh, it was Donald Pleasance's idea to throw the wig on at one point. And I, I think that that moment, more than any other moment with him in the film, is the one that stands out to me. That, that <laughs> the made the that, film? That they, like, throw this blonde wig on the president just cracks me up. And I, I do enjoy the moment at the end. I mean, I, I think that's a, a great moment when the president pretty much bails on on him and, and everyone... Uh, that had died in the whole course of trying to get him out. I, you know, that's uh, that's one of those moments. I think it's it's it's. I like that it's an element of the script. I don't think Donald Pleasance necessarily brings anything to it, but I do enjoy that it's that it's in there. Um, but yeah, he's certainly somebody who had been uh, doing a number of projects with John Carpenter. He has uh, been in a lot of his films. That's the truth. Uh, he's I, a man who's 225 credits to his name. So he's oh, a busy. Yeah. He's, he's a busy man. Yeah, he's been around. Uh, as has Isaac Hayes. Oh yeah. I'm not saying 220 credits, but the man's been around. Isaac <laughs> Hayes. He was a good. You know, he he feels like a little bit of a stunt casting in this film to me. I mean, the parts. If anything, his part is, I think, the weakest. Yeah. It's really just a little bit of a kind of a, I don't know, it's just kind of bland that it, not as much happens with it. I, I would, uh, I, I wish that there was more to his character as the Duke. And I feel in a, in a remake, that's something that they could really play with is building up that character more. Um, because Isaac Hayes definitely has some great presence and uh, not giving much to him other than driving a pimp-ass car with chandeliers on the hood <laughs> because you can. I mean, I, I feel like there's... I, I just don't feel like there was much to him, you know? Yeah. In fact, there was really nothing to him. He's yeah. just mean, he's bad, and he pursues them. And that's really kind of... That's it. Which is too bad because as long as you're doing a movie like this... Uh, and you're establishing a visual universe of New York like this, uh, then you sort of want him to go all the way. And not Isaac Hayes, but maybe George Clinton and the rest of the P-Funk. Like, let's go all the way with these. You put chandeliers on the car, for crying out loud. Like, let's make the bad guy the bad guy. 
right. in in glory. And I, I think, uh, you know, ultimately the bad guy in this is, is I agree with you, is a is a pretty weak link. Oh, that's exa- that's example uh, an example of that element of the 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 story that feels like John Carpenter didn't quite have a full grasp of the story that he was telling, and and it, he was so focused on Snake Plissken and you know his exploits of trying to get the president out that he didn't give any time to develop the bad guy to, to develop to world building. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's yep. actually is an interesting connection. We spend so much time talking about the importance of world building and, and at what cost. And in this, this, I think, is a great example of the cost of of forgetting the world that you're in while you're in it. Like I, I really see after this just talking about it, that there is a there's a mist. There's a boat that is missed here by Carpenter in his journey to get us back to the, the ultimate betrayal by the president. at The end. Yeah. Right. It's like he tried to connect those dots too quickly. Oh, I see. I feel better already just having this talk. Uh, <laughs> Justified. You want you want to talk about anybody else that stands out to you? I mean, uh, Harry, Harry Dean Stanton. Adrian Harry Barbo. Dean Stanton. Yeah, both of those. I think Harry Dean Stanton's great. We've talked about him in Alien. This came uh, not too many years after Alien, and you know he's just. Always one of those faces that uh, is great to see on screen because he just has a look, and it's it's so fun to see him. He's still somebody who's just keeping busy getting stuff made. So I always love seeing Harry Dean Stanton. And um, gosh, did you know that he was in the Avengers? No, he was a security guard in the Avengers. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. <sighs> Wow. So, so there. See, he's a man who's everywhere. Wow. I tell you what. Oh man, that may, I should that makes me sad. And I know. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, he's keeping busy. I know, he's, he's still working. That's right. And then Adrian Barbeau, I think, is uh just one of those uh lovely ladies of the eighties, you know, who just was in so many movies um in the early eighties that I uh, recall very fondly, like um, not so much this one, but definitely uh, Cannonball Run was one that I watched countless times when I was young. Creep Swamp, show. yeah, Swamp Thing. I saw. I don't know how many times I watched Swamp Thing, but that was one of my go-to faves as a kid. And Creep Show, like you said, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> so good. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Another and another person who still is just very, very actively keeping busy. I mean, she just appeared in Argo um, a couple of years ago, and right. uh, yeah, and she's actually scheduled to be in a film. The title of which cracks me up because it uh, definitely ties into uh, Sam Peckinpah and uh, his films. And uh, I don't know, just everything that has kind of the 80s vibe. It's called Bring Me the Head of Lance Henriksen. (laughs) (laughs) Synopsis is when 80s B-movie icon Tim Thomerson wakes up one day to realize the acting roles are not coming his way anymore. He sets out on a quest to find his former co-star Lance Henriksen to discover his secret of Hollywood longevity and gets more than he bargained for in the process. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That sounds hilarious. And, of course, Lance Henriksen is playing Lance Henriksen. Of course. They're all playing themselves. Because it's like John Malkovich, and like mm-hmm. you you got to do an eponymous film at some point. It's pretty exciting. Oh, we got to talk about Tom Atkins just briefly. 
who okay. plays an officer, mm-hmm. uh, and which fits kind of talk about typecast. Like, go ahead and look at his filmography. He's got 79 credits on IMDb, and more than half of them start with sergeant, captain, or detective, <laughs> or lieutenant. <laughs> right, right. Like, there's a guy who found a role. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And, on, and, oh, go ahead. I was going to say he was on your favorite, uh, uh, the uh, Equalizer. That was your favorite, <laughs> right? That reminds that, that to me seems like the... The genetic precursor to the Shield. It does. It does. Gosh, you know, I, that's one of those shows I'd love to actually go back and watch, but I never have. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't even know if it's out anywhere, like on know. DVD or anything. But I don't know. Yeah. And then we. I think we have to mention Stephen Ford is in this. Yes. Uh, who is the uh, the son of uh, President Ford, and who we talked about on the When Harry Met Sally episode because he played. Uh, the love interest, uh, Sally's love interest, who she was saying goodbye to at the airport. Now, you had some other uh, other twists on this film that you wanted to bring up. Little trivia I, bits. It's it, Yeah, it's, it's such a minor one, but the fact that this, I, I think it was actually the first film to film on, uh, on Liberty Island in New York uh, with the Statue of Liberty. And... Um, we can create our our little add this to our list of lists because now we've got a collection of films that have shot on Liberty Island. We've talked about this and we've talked about Splash. <laughs> all right, I'm making a note. Look at all these connections, the 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 amazing cinema web that we are weaving before our <laughs> audience's very eyes. <laughs> Real time weaving, that's what's happening here. <laughs> that's right. Uh, anybody else uh, strike your fancy? Do you want to talk about? Um, I think that's uh, I think well, I the other person who's not um uh, in the cast, but uh, you know, Deborah Hill was one of the uh, producers on this, who I think is longtime producer with John Carpenter. Um, and the other person that I wanted to bring up was none other than James Cameron, who worked on this. Yeah, James Cameron uh was uh, did a bunch of the uh, matte paintings. Yeah, he was a, a, worked in the visual effects department on this. He was a, a, a director of photography for some of the special visual effects and did matte work. And I think it's a shot of um, one of the shots of the city where you see the helicopter flying. And uh, I, I want to say it's around the time they're doing the food or they're talking about the area in the park where they do the food drop. The, the cityscape behind is a matte painting that uh, James Cameron actually had painted. Not, not a bad eye. Not bad at all. Not a bad eye. Uh, apparently, uh, did we see uh, there's some uncredited roles in here that? that yeah, Jamie funny. Jamie Lee Curtis is uh, uncredited as one of the computer voices. Right. Uh, let's see. Uh, I think that was the one that I was that I was forgetting. Jamie Lee Curtis was the one that stood out for me. I can't think of anybody else that's. I don't see anybody else in here that's catching my eye. Yeah, Deborah Hill, uh, the producer, she was an uncredited uh, computer voice. Uh, Nick, John Nick Castle was playing the piano. Right. And there were a number, like John Carpenter was uncredited. He was a violin player. He was a helicopter pilot. He's one of the Secret Service guys. So, yeah, I mean, there's little things yeah. in there, little those little Easter eggs that are fun to right. find out about. One one last thing that I will say. Yes. I I wish that John Carpenter would... Uh, find other composers to use other than himself because Lord Almighty, 
I have such a hard time. That's something that always dates his films is his music. I mean, it did. He did a great job with Halloween, creating a really creepy theme that worked really well in the context of that film. But for the most part, John, uh, yeah. get Ennio Morricone did such a great job with the thing. Look to that as an example and find other people to do your music for you. Please, please. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, you know, the uh, cinematography. Uh, uh, well, see, now I close my tab. Good old Dean Kundi. Dean Kundi, who's yeah. been with him for uh, for a long, long time. He has been, he's one of those cinematographers who's done a lot of stuff. I mean, he did, uh, we talked about him on our Apollo 13 episode. Right. You know, he's done stuff with Spielberg, Jurassic Park, and Hook. He did Robert Zemeckis, uh, the Back to the Futures trilogy, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You know, all these ones with, um, uh, with Carpenter, Big Trouble in Little China, um, this one. I mean, he's The Fog, you know, at Halloween. He's a guy who's been around for... A long, long time, um, starting out as a director of photography in, in 1973. So he's been doing it over 40 years now and uh, still is working hard and uh, doing lots of great stuff. I say that with the caveat that Jack and Jill is not something that falls into the category of great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andy. <laughs> You're being hard on, on old... Adam Sandler, aren't I you? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, you know, I think it is uh, pretty low on the uh, old Rotten Tomatoes rating. And well, I don't a, feel that. Yeah, it's not good. I don't feel that's one of those unjust Rotten Tomatoes no. ratings. I feel like you know, <laughs> it's probably fair to say that it's got the score it deserves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. All right. Well, I what do you do? You have any other tidbits you want to bring out or talk about before we uh, get to the um, rest of our business, new business? Um, you know, I think there's there are a few little things that are are worth bringing up. Um, one is just the fact that this is such a um a film that has drawn such a fan base now, and. Uh, like I said, it, it 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 has these just crazy fans who love it. And for those who do, if you haven't heard yet of the Escape from New York and L.A. page, a tribute to Snake Plissken, it's definitely the page for you because it's just somebody who loves everything having to do with Snake Plissken and his various escapes that he's done. Um, it, there's all constant news and updates, uh, you know, chats with John Carpenter, um, different updates on all these canceled projects, different comic book adaptations, um, you know, John Carpenter's Snake Plissken Chronicles, uh, just all sorts of stuff that people were doing. There was going to be an anime uh, a show that was going to be put together at some point that fell apart. Um, and a game, like all these different things that uh, never quite happened. But this person has created a, a font of information for you with links, uh, everything you could want um, regarding either of the films. And uh, that's something we didn't talk about was the sequel, which is the other thing that I was going to bring up is, did you see the sequel? The Escape oh, yeah. From yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember very little about it other than there's like a, uh, like, doesn't he get in through like some jet powered pneumatic tube? Did Gosh, you see I it? 
I yeah, I did. I I thought he went in with like a, kind of an underwater like a oh maybe he's an underwater sub- submarine. Thing. I just remember him like being in a very confined space, like in the little yeah. like capsule thing. It was like a capsule submarine. It was like a super tiny one man James Bond. That's what it, yeah. Sub. That's what it was. Yeah, and he popped up. I can't remember where. I just remember feeling it was pretty abysmal. I remember wasn't it? Um, Bruce Campbell was the like psychoplastic surgeon yes. in that. Yeah, yeah. Those the little things that I remember. And I remember there's like some fake Disney park that uh, you know just I, I don't know. I think Steve Buscemi was in it. I don't remember. I just remember feeling like that was an example of trying to recapture the magic and not latching onto the things. Like, I think he was trying to make fun of all the things that in LA that you make fun of in escape from New York. I don't think they were poking fun at the things in New York that, no, right. You know, they were, it was a much more, there was a much more interesting look at society. And actually that's something we didn't talk about, but I believe 1981 was actually a horribly violent year for New York. Um, I think in the actual city, I think there was a lot of crime and a lot of things going on that year. Uh, in fact, I believe there's a new film coming out fairly soon um, about kind of the, the violence of New York. I'll have to try to remember. Um, uh, gosh, what is the film called? Um, our favorite uh, um, Zero Dark Thirty uh, ladies in it, Jessica Chastain. Um, if I can remember what it is, I will I'll let you yeah, know. But anyway, yeah. it's a film that takes place in this kind of 1981 New York, and uh, uh, it's just really all about kind of just this, kind of this frightening look at everything going on in the city. And it's called A Most Violent Year. There you go. About 1981 in New York. A thriller set in New York City during the winter of 1981, statistically one of the most violent years in the city's history, and centered on the lives of uh, an immigrant and his family trying to expand their business and capitalize on opportunities as the rampant violence, decay, and corruption of the day drag them in and threaten to destroy all they have built. That's fascinating. Um, the uh, Wendell Curtis Hamilton Draunt and Riggs wrote an academic paper uh, th- that is titled, entitled More Drugs, Less Crime, Why Crime Dropped in New York City and the U.S. from 1981 through 2007. And it, it, is, it talks, you know, it, it anchors specifically on the decline in crime that began at its peak in 1981 in New York City hmm. uh, and plummeted from there. That's fascinating. I didn't, I, we didn't talk about that, obviously. I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, but that was... When I think about it, though, uh, culturally, like I, I remember, because 1981, what were we? Nothing, right? We were. Yeah, right. I was too little to even yeah, too know. Little what to, New York to was. know, and but I do have this overriding sort of sense memory of, uh, you don't go to New York because there's a lot of crime there. And when right. I went to school on the East Coast, I was very, very close to New York City and spent a lot of time in New York City. Uh, I was, I was just across the river in New Jersey, but. Um, you know, I remember coming from the Midwest thinking, gosh, I think I'm supposed to be scared of living, in, <laughs> of living at least in such proximity to New York. None of that ever came to pass. New York was actually quite uh, quite a dream. But uh, that's interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. All right. And then the last little note that I have is if you're really hankering for some pizza and you're in San Francisco, you can actually go to a place called Escape from New York Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you should take a picture and post it on facebook if you go there you go mm-hmm. that's it um all right 
So we've already talked about the the dollars, right? Uh, we talked about how much it cost. It uh, it did. Let's see. So it cost six million dollars to make, um, and uh, which is about uh, fifteen million dollars uh, total. It actually ended up grossing in the U.S. about twenty-five million, which is about almost sixty-five million. Um, I don't have any international figures; it's all domestic. But you know, even just domestic, it ended up making its money back. It made almost five hundred thousand dollars adjusted per finished minute. Well, you know, made some money. Yeah. Hey, it did better than the thing. <laughs> that's you know, that's a really good point and a sad, yeah. a sad testament. Well, I think the film, uh, The Thing, kind of took audiences by surprise, and that's yeah. one that I think has grown in cult status because people have grown to realize how great it is. And I think Escape from New York certainly has its fans, but I don't think it, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think it's kind of uh, ended up becoming one of those things that has, has created or something that has actually ended up making more money. Right. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just completely making that up. I'm going to let you, okay. I'm going to let you hang on that. Thank you. All right. Uh, all right, I think it's time to rank it. I think you're right. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can see all of the films that we have ranked. You can catch our, uh, you can see our big top 10 list, our top 100, all of the top lists. And uh, yeah, I don't know, here's hoping maybe Escape from New York will crack the vaunted top 100. We shall see. All right, here we go Escape from New York or The Born Ultimatum. Born Ultimatum. Absolutely. Escape from New York or Compulsion? Interesting. Compulsion uh, is a good movie. Yeah, it is a good movie. Um, gosh, I might it say does, Compulsion. It does have that monologue. It's got Orson Welles. It's got there's, a great monologue. And, there's and, and no it, great monologue in Escape from New York. And it's got a great one-liner here or there, but uh, yeah. I, I think I would go Compulsion. I think I'm going to go Compulsion. Escape from New York or the Hudsucker Proxy. Mm, oh, boy. I, I'm going to do the Hudsucker Proxy. See, I think I would actually do Escape from New York. I, the Hudsucker Proxy. Oh, I man. know. I know. It's how you such feel a about silly. It. I just had a hard time getting into it. I uh, know you did. But I had a. I mean, they're, they're both movies I had a hard time. Okay, sort of here's. Really I will actually go with Hudsucker Proxy, and I'll tell you why. Please. Because the production values of it create a world when you're talking about world building yes. they create a full world in the Hudsucker proxy even though i don't like the film that much i feel like it's a completely um solid world that the coen brothers created whereas escape from new york i feel like it was an ed wood set exactly exactly on. and that was the first thing i was going to say is well you know Hudsucker, but they finished that movie <laughs> you know they like finished painting all the sets and stuff right, right, right. <laughs> all right all right escape from new york or Alien Resurrection. <laughs> uh, oh, man. God, you, Alien Resurrection has a couple really great scenes in it. I'm going to, you know, really I'm, terrible scenes. I know, I know, I know. I have no idea what you're going to go with. I can't believe that I'm, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to go with Alien Resurrection. Uh, but again, I think it's on the same premise as the as the last one. It's just a it, it it's a movie that even if you turn the volume off, maybe I should watch it with the volume down. I can <laughs> I can get some joy out of just watching it. Yeah, I mean, I I love the character Snake Plissken, but I still feel like Alien Resurrection. As gosh, you know, I feel guilty saying it, but 
I, I feel like it is a more, it's a film that gives me a little bit more. Like, I feel like I've had my fill of Escape from New York. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just, yeah, you know. Done. I mean, I probably have had my fill of Alien Resurrection too, for that matter. <laughs> uh, Escape from New York or Strange Days? Getting right down to the oh, bottom Oh, my here. goodness. I, I will definitely pick it over Strange Days. I would, I would also pick it over Strange Days. I always say, if only I could just have that, the trailer. Just judge it for the trailer. Escape from New York or The Spanish Prisoner? Spanish Prisoner. Yeah. I see. I would do Escape from New York. Spanish Prisoner. You know, David Mamet has his stuff, but I, I don't know. I, I think on the whole, I just didn't think that much of that film on a rewatch. I felt like it was a little lacking in most places. I I disagree. And I think I, you know, I, I really, I, I feel bad that, that it is that low. I think I would fight for it more knowing what I know now about this show and, and about that film. I would have fought harder in our ranking. I think it's too low. I, I, I think you're saying that with time away from it. I think if you rewatched it again, you'd go, oh, yeah, it is in the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. But I do. Oh, come on. Really? Uh, I, all I, the, you know, it's showing me a picture of Rebecca Pigeon, and when you put Rebecca Pigeon up next to Snake Plissken, I'm sorry, but Snake Plissken will win every time. Oh in my, my mind. god, Rebecca Pigeon just, she's not great. I don't know. The story just was a convoluted mess that didn't really lead to anything that was really solid, anyway, for me. All right. If nothing else, you've got a kick-ass poster for Escape from New York. All right, fine. <laughs> Although to be fair, I have a I'm looking at a photo right now of the hybrid alien hugging Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. No, what, I feel whatever. Guilty. I feel guilty for that choice uh-huh. too. Escape from New York or the Fifth Element? Fifth Element. Hands down. Ah, man, I would have so much more fun watching Escape from New York again as opposed to watching The Fifth Element again. But you're going to give me but Fifth Element. I will give you Fifth Element because of world building. Because it's a team. It's a, this is a team. We're on a team. Yeah. And if we have a little right. faith, we'll see it through. There you go. 125 out of 131. <laughs> it did not, alas, crack the top 100. It definitely did not. That's becoming a more interesting goal. Now that we have, you know, more than a hundred. Yeah, but now films. that we're not 101. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, all right. It, so, you know, it is what it is. I'm glad we did it. But next week, we've got substance. It's definitely a, a, a film of substance, yes. Next week is going to be an interesting one that uh, it'll be an interesting one to talk about because it, in a way it's just like, you know, talking philosophy. Yes, I'm. You know, I'm excited about it. So it, we're we're going to be doing uh, Louis Malle's uh, My Dinner with Andre. Yeah. Uh, Wallace Shawn and uh, Andre Gregory eating and, and talking. talking. <laughs> Should be you good. Know, I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, and you, it's not you, three and a half hours long. If you eat dinner while we're while, while we're doing the show, you can have My Dinner with Andy. We. C- <gasps> Oh my oh my God, God. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. <laughs> I totally did that. 
call you Andre from now on. <laughs> there you go. <sighs> Too funny. All right. Hey, good talk. Yes, indeed. I'm going to go to bed. How'd your uh, how'd your Amazon pick go this week? This week, four out of five stars. Really? Yeah, Mister B A said the way a dis- the way a destroyed New York was pictured made me really think about the human race, the direction we going, and those big beautiful tatas. I do hope everyone understands who I'm speaking of. Thank you, <laughs> Mister B A. Uh. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> wow. I don't have I can't beat that. I actually have two that that maybe I went straight to the bottom. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, no. I one star save your time from David Mathern. Clearly I did not notice how old this movie was. If you like <laughs> old crappy somewhat of an action movie, this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> Old, crappy, somewhat of an action movie. That's Escape from New York. Oh, but the other funny. one was from Deepak Jose, who writes, Too bad this movie, too bad movie waste of time. Better to go to sleep rather this stupid movie. That was almost a haiku. Yeah, it almost was. You didn't read the rest of his. Oh, there! <laughs> you're right. I didn't. I, I actually took it literally. There is no more words other than saying really bad. <laughs> oh, epic. Amazon. I Amazon. love you, Amazon. <laughs> Good night, Amazon. Good night, Pete. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>